All right, well, this morning we're going to be in the book of John, chapter 1. So over the last several weeks, Pastor Seth has been uh, looking specifically in the book of Genesis and showing how uh, that our God is, always has been, and always will be the living and true God. In talking about the creation, uh, he said that uh, our God is the sole source of all that exists in heaven and on earth, and he created everything by his own power and according to his sovereign plan. So this week, as we start the Advent season, we want to celebrate the fact that Christ has come to earth, and we celebrate the work of Christ on our behalf. And as we look at John 1 uh, today, we will see that Christ is the ultimate fulfillment of that uh, Genesis account. In fact, we will see that he was there from the beginning with God as the creator and sustainer of this world. And we'll see that God formulated a plan that would redeem sinful men so that even though we are dead in our sins, in Christ we can have new life. So as we read John 1, we'll consider this fact, the fact that Jesus is, uh, is the eternal creator of all things. And because of the world's sinfulness, in God's gracious plan of redemption, Jesus became a human in order to give to us new life. So let's read John uh, chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. It says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light, that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Let's pray. Father, as we come to this passage, I pray that we would... Uh, have open eyes, open hearts, and open ears to uh, what you would have uh, for us to learn from this. Lord, I pray that we would uh, take, what is, uh, uh, take what is said, and I pray that uh, it would be used for your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we see here from the beginning, uh, we see that there are two things that I want to point out. We have the eternal Jesus, our creator, in verses 1 through 8. Uh, and you see that in the beginning that Jesus is the creator of all things. In the first five verses, we, we get this sense that Jesus is the creator of all things. So just as in Genesis 1, we talked about God as the sole creator, Jesus, the word, is the creator of all things. So Jesus, the word, pre-exists. As we read in verses 1 and 2, it says, In the beginning was the word. As you look through, the, look through the Gospels, the four Gospels, all four of them tell kind of an origin story in some sense. There's a beginning that's, that's declared, right? As you look at Matthew, 
he opens up with the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. So the genealogy is the origin of Jesus Christ. So it goes through his uh, story of his birth. Uh, Luke, he references those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word. And then when you look in the, in the Gospel of Mark, we've been look, going through Mark in my equip class, and, and Mark, he starts his Gospel with the phrase, the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So he even starts with that same phrase, the beginning. <clears throat> but John goes even further than any of the other Gospel writers. He doesn't start at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, which is where Mark begins his Gospel. He doesn't even start at the beginning of Jesus' life on earth, as Matthew and Luke do. And not only that, he doesn't even start at the beginning of creation. He goes even back before creation. He intentionally phrases his, the beginning of his, his book in the beginning. So it immediately recalls Genesis 1. In the beginning, and his readers would have anticipated the next word to be God. In the beginning, God. But he doesn't do that. Instead, he, he kind of flips it on him and says, in the beginning was the word. <clears throat> so, the word ties back to, again, Genesis 1 in the Old Testament, this idea of the word of God being present at creation. You look in Genesis 1, 3, 1, 6, 1, verse 9, and so on and so forth. It continually says, and God said, let there be light, and there was light. And then God said this. So it is the word of God that is the creative power. So it ties back to this idea of, of the word being existent before creation. So it is not a creation itself. The word was in the beginning. And then it says the word was with God. So this signifies there's some sort of association, some sort of relationship, but it's, it's much more intimate, much more closely intimately tied together when it says the word was with God. Uh, this word that is used uh, with, uh, it's typically only used to describe relationships between people. So we see immediately this word is a person. John is declaring that this word is a person. There is this relationship that the word has with God, and it is intimate, and it is a close-knit relationship. So there are two persons here. So he is distinguishable from God the Father, but he is with him in a relationship with him. And then he takes it even a step further in the next, next phrase, and it says, and the word was God. When you look in the original language, I think it's important to see the word order here because we read it as the word was God, and that is the correct way to translate it into English because God is the predicate. It's the, the ending of the, of, the, of the phrase. So the word is the subject of the sentence, and God was, is the predicate. But they flip that around in the original language to emphasize God here. So it would be as if we would say, and the word was God. It's emphasizing that fact that God is the word. He's not just with God. He is, in fact, God. So everything that can be said about God can be said about the word. So when you read Genesis 1 and you read the creation account, everything that is said there about God can be said about the word as well. He was there with God in the beginning, and he is God himself. And then in verse uh, 2, it's really, it's kind of just a, a repeating of that phrase. He, uh, he was in the beginning with God. But it shifts the focus a little bit, uh, whereas 
As one author put it this way, uh, though the score of the prologue may be that of Genesis 1, the content is that of the gospel. Verse 2 makes certain that verse 1 is never to be read merely as an allusion to Genesis 1, but as actually preceding Genesis 1, as the word will claim for himself. When you read later on in the Gospel of John, John 8:58, he says, Before Abraham was, I am. So he says, I was there in the beginning, even before Genesis 1. I was there. The word of God was there. So Jesus pre-exists the word pre-existed. And not only that, Jesus is the word. He creates all things that exist. When you read verse 3, it says, all things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. Three times he uses this expression, made, 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 made. It's the, in the Greek, it's, the word is, is egeneto. And it's used in this, this prologue of John, uh, these first 18 verses, it's used 11 times. And this same word, if you look in the Old Testament, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, which is known as the Septuagint, if you read that and you read Genesis 1, that word, agoneto, is used 23 times to describe the work of God in creation. When it says, and there was light, it's the word in the Greek, agoneto. So the word, there became light, essentially. So, again, the language that John is using here, he's clearly clearly emphasizing the fact he's recalling this Genesis account. He's recalling creation, that Jesus, the word, is the one who created all things. And we know this concept is not unique, though, to John, right? As you read through uh, some of the other other portions of the New Testament, Colossians 1.16, Paul talking about Jesus, he says, For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. The author of Hebrews starts his letter, starts his uh, book in the same way. He says, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. So it is through the word, through the son of God that the world was created. In Jesus Christ, all things exist. And not only that, he says it in not only the positive sense that all things exist through him, but in the negative sense as well, there is nothing that can possibly exist apart from him. It is only through the word of God that anything can exist. And so Jesus, the word, he exists, he existed before time, he pre-exists, he created all things that exist, and then in verses 4 and 5, we see that Jesus, the word, gives life, and he gives light. In verse 4, it says, in him was life. So life is to be found in him. It's not only that life is mediated through the word, but in fact, life, in Jesus, the word, embodies life. Life flows through him. This phrase is, it's actually, uh, everything up to this point is in the past tense. So even this, it says, in him was life. But it's not past tense in the sense that it's something that happened in the past and it doesn't happen anymore. But instead, uh, as one, uh, one way I, I read that it uh, was written is, uh, the tense is used to be understood from the perspective of, of one who looks at the present in light of its origin. So the person who is writing this is looking at the origin of all creation. In him was life. And not only was life there, 
but all throughout eternity, all throughout time. In the word, we have life. And this word life is used in the Gospel of John. When you read the Gospel of John, he uses that word. uh, The word is zoe. And he uses it 36 times in the Gospels, in the Gospel of John. And you compare that with the rest of the New Testament, the next, uh, the next most, uh, John uses it again in his letters and then also in the book of Revelation another 30 times. So 66 times in the Bible, John uses this word zoe, life. And other than that, uh, in the re- throughout the rest of the New Testament, that word is used 69 times. So almost half of all the instances of this word life is used by John, the apostle, and a third of those are used here in the Gospel of John. So life is significant. Life is a very key theme as you read through. Uh, if you read through the rest of the Gospel of John, life is, is very important. It's a very important theme, a very important idea. And this life, uh, it could refer uh, to the physical life that he's been talking about, this idea of, of Jesus as the word being the creator of all things. But it also anticipates, it also looks forward, uh, because every other instance that the word life is used in the Gospel of John, it's speaking of spiritual life. It's speaking of this eternal life that exists through the word. And so, so he's anticipating that. He's already anticipating this creation here, eventually leading to uh, a potentially a new creation, this eternal life that exists uh, through the word. And then it says that this life was the light of men. Again, this concept of life, uh, this idea of light, it's used uh, throughout scripture to to describe God, uh, his work, and specifically his creation. When you go back to Genesis 1, the very first thing that was created in Genesis 1-3 is light, right? That before before life existed on earth, light was first formed. And then once he created the light, and then he created the lights in the sky that separated uh, the light from the darkness. And now when we see this, it says that in him was life, and that life is the light of men. So it's not just that he provides light, that he created light, but he is the source of that light. The word of God is the source of that light. We see that Again, throughout the, throughout the rest of the Gospel of John, John 8, 12, uh, he's speaking, Jesus is speaking, and he says, uh, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. John 9, 5, as long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. So light is a key idea. And then you look in, again in, in, uh, in chapter 11, talking about, uh, the resurrection of Lazarus. Whenever Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, before he does that, he's speaking to Mary and Martha, and he speaks to Martha, and he says to her, I am the resurrection and the life. So whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Again, this, is, this is the idea. This is what is happening, is that in God, in the word, we have light and we have life. And the question is, do we believe that? That's, that's, that's the, the idea that we're getting at here. John 14, 6, again, he says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. In this light, it says that it shines in darkness. In verse 5, the light shines in darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Here again, we see this, this shift 
the subtle shift, again, moving from that creation uh, to, this, to this idea of spiritual salvation, this eternal uh, life, because the light shines. As I mentioned before, in him was life. Everything that has happened up to this point is taking place in the past. It's a past tense expressions of a present reality, but it's taking place in the past. Now we get to this here, and it says, and the light shines in darkness. It is present. It is active. It is continuous, and it is eternal. This light shines. It has always shined, and it will never cease to shine. And the light shines in the darkness. As you read through, again, the Gospel of John, this concept of darkness is not just the absence of light, but it is, in fact, evil. In a positive sense, it is the evil that exists in this world. When you read John 3, 19, it says, And this is the judgment that light has come into the world, and people love darkness rather than light because their works were evil. And I already mentioned John 8, 12, when he says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. John 12, 35 the light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. So without the light, without the light that comes from the word, people would be living and loving the darkness because of their evil, right? Because of the evil that lives within our hearts. Apart from that light, we would be living in darkness. But the light shines so that darkness cannot overcome it, right? This, it's Darkness cannot overcome it. So it's, it's not an equal battle, right? We, we think, about, uh, think about that in, we watch movies and we see this battle versus good and evil. And it sometimes looks like the evil is going to triumph over good. And, and we have this, this almost an equal battle, right? This equal sense. And, and there are philosophies that teach that, that we have this light side and we have this dark side. And we got to choose which one we're going to fill. But that's not what this is saying here. No, what this is saying is that the light cannot overcome or cannot be overcome by the darkness it's not an equal battle it's an overwhelming victory jesus as the light is the victor overwhelmingly and this is what the people are anticipating too right when you look in the book of isaiah uh, they were anticipating the messiah coming it says the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness on them has light shown so the light is shining on them it's coming to them and he is coming into the world that's what john is is saying here this light this light that's the life of men it's coming into the world that's what he's anticipating as you as you read further on in, into this so we see that jesus is the creator of all things in these first five verses and then uh very quickly in, in verses six through eight jesus as the word, is also not the creator of all things, but specifically he gets in and says that he's the creator of, of his own witness, of John uh, the Baptist. It says that in verse 6, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. This word that's translated was is the same word, agoneto, that's used in verse 3 to describe all things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made, right? It's the same word, so it is there was a man that came, a, a man that was made, whose name was John. <clears throat> so immediately, two things come to mind here. One is that John was a man, and he was created, right? He's not like this word of God that, that he's talking about here. He is, he is a man who was created unlike the uncreated 
word, but also he was sent on a mission by God specifically. And what is that mission? He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. So the focus here is that John is a witness, right? The task that God sent him out to be was to be a witness for the light. <clears throat> so that all might believe through him. That's the idea. Is he will tell others about this light so that others might believe. And this word believe is also key as you read through the gospel, as you read through the rest of this uh, passage, but then as you read through the gospel of John, believe is is used a hundred, almost a hundred times. I think it's 98 times in the Gospel of John. Uh, the word, the verb believe, calling people to believe, is used 98 times. Compare that with the rest of the Gospels, the other three Gospels. John uses it more than three times the amount of times that the rest of the Gospels do. So belief, believe in this thing that I am teaching. That is key as you read through the rest of the Gospel of John. And he emphasizes again that he came as a witness, right? He was not that light. He himself, John, was not the light, but he came to bear witness about that light. <clears throat> so John is seen again in contrast to that light. When you look through the rest of John, uh, John chapter 5, Jesus does describe John the Baptist as a lamp, though. He says, he was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light but the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the words that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. So John was a lamp, but I am the light. I am the source of the light that that lamp even has. <clears throat> so in Christ, in Jesus, we have the eternal Jesus, our creator, now when we look at the rest of the passage, we have the incarnate Jesus, our life giver. Beginning in, in verse 9, we see that Jesus, the light, has come into the world. The true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. So Jesus, who is the word, not only is he the word, he is the light. But not only is he the light, he's the true light. In other words, he's the ultimate light. That's the, that's the sense that I think John has in mind here uh, when you read uh, this, this passage. Uh, D.A. Carson, in describing this, he talks about this concept of, of John speaking of Jesus as being true, uh, right? So uh, in, in chapter 6, he talks about Jesus being the true bread. He's the bread of life, the true bread. Uh, so he says, thus the manna provided in the Old Testament was genuinely from God, but Jesus is the true bread, the ultimate and therefore the genuine bread from heaven. Israel was God's chosen vine, and John would happily acknowledge the fact, but now Jesus himself is the locus or stalk of God's covenant community whose members must be related to him as branches. John 15, I am the true vine, he said. So also here, any reader of the Old Testament would know that the law and wisdom give light. But John's point is that the word who came into the world is the light, the true light, the genuine and ultimate self-disclosure of God 
to man. So that is the idea here is the word is the light, and that light has come to disclose himself to us, to, to, to reveal God to us. The true light is coming into the world. So it's anticipating what's happening later on when we get in verse 14. He's coming into the world. But what is this world that he's coming into? As you read uh, it later on in John, but also specifically, we'll look specifically just in the context here, the word world typically has the idea of, of negative, negative connotations. It's, it's, a, it's the idea that he's coming into a hostile situation, a hostile world. So he was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. So here we see he's not only now coming into the world, right? In verse 9 it says that this light was coming into the world. Now in verse 10, he is in the world. <clears throat> and this, this almost recalls uh, verse 1, whenever he's, he speaks of the word in three different ways. When he says, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, the word was God. Now here in verse 10, he uses three phrases to express the word in the world, right? He says, he was in the world. The world was made through him. The world did not know him. So he's urgently discussing the idea of the word's movement into the world. And again, he echoes this fact that Jesus, the word, the light, this true light, he is the creator. Right? He uses that same terminology, the world was made through him. And yet the world did not know him. This is not, not just that the world didn't recognize him, right? We, we've talked about this in the past in the, in the Old Testament, this concept of, to knowing, of knowing someone. It's an intimate knowledge, right? When it says Adam knew his wife Eve and they conceived and had a child, right? So it's a, an intimate knowledge. But here we have the opposite effect of that, right? It's, it's the world did not know him. They did not have that relationship with him anymore. Instead, they are living in opposition, right? They're standing in rebellion against their own creator. He was in the world. The world was made through him, the creator. Imagine that, the creator of the world. He is here in the world, and the world rejected him. (laughs) They did not recognize him. They did not respond to him. They did not know him. And that is the idea here. It's, it's, it's this intellectual rejection. It entails a willful refusal to accept or believe in someone or something. And that is the key theme of the Gospel of John, is to believe in Jesus. He's calling people to, to know him and to believe in him. <clears throat> he moves even further, and he says he came to his own. And his own people did not receive him. He goes from this general idea to a much more specific idea. Uh, when he says he came to his own, it's really the idea he came to his own homeland, right? His own property. But he went to his own property, but it was his own people who did not receive him. His own people. It's, it recalls uh, the people who, who God himself chose. Right? When, you, when you read through this, this is the way one author uh, wrote it, is not only was Jesus not received by a world made through him, 
but he was also rejected by a people specially chosen by God as his very own. The picture is that of the word not being a welcome guest among his own people, the very ones who should have received him with open arms. Right? These are the people, God's chosen people in Exodus 19. Right? He says, Exodus 19.5, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. Right? So he had this intimate relationship with the nation of Israel. And he came to his own people, to those very chosen people, and those people rejected him. And we see that over and over as you read through the Old Testament, right? Over and over again, it's God's chosen people who are continually rejecting him. Isaiah 65, verses 2 and 3. I spread out my hands all the day to a rebellious people who walk in a way that is not good, following their own devices, a people who provoke me to my face continually. Jeremiah 7.25, from, from the day that your fathers came out of the land of Egypt to this day, I have persistently sent all my servants, the prophets, to them day after day, yet they did not listen to me or incline their ear, but they stiffened their neck. They did worse than their fathers. So even from the time that they came out of Egypt... From that, from that day to this day, God is sending his servants to them, and day after day, they stiffened their necks at him. They rejected him. <clears throat> you see that in, in uh, also, as I said, we've been going through the uh, Gospel of Mark in my equip class, and, and one of the last passages that we looked at in Mark chapter 12, it was one of the last interactions that Jesus had with, uh, with the Pharisees. And he, he spoke to them in a parable, and he t- told them this parable known as the parable of the tenants, where he told them there was a man who planted this vineyard. He planted the vineyard, did everything, dug, dug the pit for the wine press, he built the tower, and he leased it out to these tenants. <clears throat> and then he went on to another country. But then whenever the season came for the, for the fruit to come, he sent a servant to go to those people, to the, to the tenants, uh, to get some of the fruit to bring back to the owner. And it says that they sent him away, they beat the servant and sent him away empty-handed. And so he sent another servant. And that one, they, they, it says that they, they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And then he sent another one and they killed him. And they sent others. He kept sending other servants. And some they beat and some they killed. And then eventually he said, I have one other, my beloved son. I'm going to send him and he's going, they will respect him. But those tenants... They said, hey, this is the heir, so let's kill him, and then we'll claim the inheritance for ourselves. And so they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. And so then the end of that parable is that now what the owner of the vineyard will do is he will come and destroy that tenant and give the vineyard uh, to others. Right? So it's, he's speaking of his very own death there uh, to, the, to, the, uh, to the Pharisees. And that's the idea here is he came into a world a world that was his very own people. And those same people rejected him over and over again to the point where eventually we, we read that they did. They killed him. They, he died. He was crucified. So the creation rejects its creator and the loved rejects their lover. When Jesus was not received by the people to whom he belonged, God himself was not received by the world that belonged to him. So he came 
into the world as the light. And then in verse 12 and 13, he came as the, Jesus, the creator, uh, came so that those who believe would become God's children. So if we, stopped, if we stopped it right there, if we stopped at verse 11, that would be pretty dark, right? It would be pretty bleak to end it right there as the rejection of, of, of the word. But it doesn't stop there, right? Just as it was in the days of the Old Testament, when the people rejected God, there was always a remnant of people who believed. And in the same way, there's a remnant of people who believe now. It says that those... Uh, So in verse 11, his own people did not receive him. But then verse 12, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God. So there's this transition here. So all of creation, even those people that had been specifically chosen by God, had rejected their creator. And so because of that, something new had to happen. There was a new creation was necessary. And here is where we see that, this new creation. We see this transition from a tragedy to the triumph, right? There are those people who did receive him. And that's not just an accepting or receiving of something that's offered. It's, it's much more specific. It's, it's accepting or recognizing someone's authority. So these people that received him, they, they accepted the word's authority. They accepted Jesus' authority. And those ones who received him are also described as, as what? The ones who believed in his name. I told you belief is so important. It is so key uh, as in the Gospel of John. I mean, it's key for our lives. But uh, as you read through the Gospel of John here, as I said, 98 times he uses this. So this belief is acknowledging who he is, and finding our complete trust in him. So it is those, those people who received Jesus, those are the ones who believed in his name, in his name. In other words, it's his very character, the very person of Jesus. They believed in him. It's a complete trust, a complete faith in him. And those who did that, those who received him, those who believed in him, it says that they've been given the right to become children of God. They have the privilege, right? A privilege, an authorization given to them by someone in authority. And that authority, that what was given to them was the privilege to become God's children. Again, this word here, to become the children of God, it's the same word, agoneto, that I mentioned earlier, the word that was used for everything that was made in the world was created. All things were made through him. So again, now it's, it's those who come to Jesus, those who believe in him, that receive him, that accept his authority. Those are the people that become, they are remade, a new creation. It's those that, John, uh, that uh, Jesus talks about later in John chapter 3 are the ones who were born again, right? It's those who are no longer of this world, but are instead been brought out of the world, They are a new creation. So the preexistent word was the creator of all things. He came into his own world and his own people, and those people rejected him. But those who did not reject him, the ones who believed him, he has made a new creation. 
Immediately, I, I, that brings to mind to me 2 Corinthians 5.17, where it says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And not only that, it's, it's key. I think this, this verse, verse 12, it's key uh, to the whole entire rest of the book of John. As you get to the very end of John chapter 20, you see the final purpose. John waits to the end of his book to reveal what the purpose of his book was. And he says uh, in John 20, verse 30 and 31, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. So being born of God, to be reborn, this new birth that he talks about in John 3, this idea here of becoming children of God, it is only through those who believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that when you believe, you will have life, you will have Zoe in his name, eternal life in his name. So Jesus as the creator came so that those who would believe would become God's children. And then uh, finally in verse 14, Jesus, the word, became a man and lived with his people. In verse 14, it says, the word became flesh and he dwelt among us. So now uh, it's, it's, he's recalling again what he mentioned in verse 1, because Verse 1 and verse 14, these are the only two instances that he actually uses the term, the word, uh, is in verse 1 and then in verse 14. So he's recalling back to, to where he was at in the beginning, where in the beginning was the word. So the word is eternal, right? He was there from the beginning. He is God himself. And now that word has become flesh. <clears throat> there was no change that took place, right? No change within the person of the word. There was no replacing of, of, of anything. There was no uh, mixture, uh, you know, not a development or a mixture of both, but it's a full union in which nothing is taken away from the divine and nothing is added to the creaturely. So, so in this moment, the word became flesh, and he uses this term flesh that's, that's probably the most crude term that could have been used to describe uh, a, a human body. He didn't use a, one of the words as soma, he could have used his body, or he could have used anthropos as he became man. But no, he says he became, the word is sarks. So it, it's, in other instances, it's used to describe our sinful flesh. And I don't, I don't think that's the idea here, uh, but it's, it's really this idea is, is that it's, it's the part of our body that's the most vulnerable, Right? It's the most easily destructible part of the human body is our flesh. And so that's what the Word did. The Word of God took on this weak human body in something that's commonly referred to as the humiliation of Christ. That's what it's called. When Jesus came down from, from heaven to become a man, it's, it's known as the humiliation. When he took on this, this form of a servant, Philippians 2 d- describes as well. And it says that he dwelt among us. This idea is the idea of it's uh, pitching a tent is really the idea. So it harkens back again to the Old Testament idea of the tabernacle uh, where uh, God would reside with Israel as they were on the journey to the promised land. God would come into the tabernacle 
and dwell among his people. In Exodus 33, it describes that uh, when Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent and the Lord would speak to Moses. And then another instance in Exodus 40, uh, the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. So the glory of the Lord fills the tabernacle in in Exodus. But here now, God has taken up residence in something much more intimate, much more closely related, right? He has dwelt in the midst, not in the tabernacle, but now he is dwelling in the very presence of the body of Jesus Christ. And we have seen his glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And so though Jesus... Uh, Through Jesus in the flesh, we have now seen God's glory, which is a manifestation of God's being, right? It's, It's his nature. It's his presence. The glory of the Lord is now present here on earth, and he is the one and only son that's come from the Father. He is the unique son of the Father. And I think as we look at this verse, uh, I know Pastor Seth had mentioned on Realm, uh, whenever we're going back to the Alpha and Omega series, we're going to transition from this idea of God creates to God covenants. And I think that there's also, I'll just touch on it very briefly, I think there's a sense of that here as well, that, that there's this transition that's being made from God as the Word, as the creator of all things, and now he's, he's covenanting with us when it says that he is full of grace and truth. The words are he is full of, of charis and aletheia. <clears throat> and it recalls this concept in Exodus 34 whenever Moses asked God to show me your glory, right? And, and God passed by him. And whenever he passed by him, he says, uh, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. That's hesed and emeth. It's his, his hesed, his covenant faithfulness and his truth. And I think that's the concept that John has in mind here whenever he uses the words grace and truth, that Jesus is, is full of grace and truth. He is full of that hesed, his covenant faithfulness, and his uh, true truth, his fidelity, his, yeah, his covenant faithfulness and truthfulness. God's covenant faithfulness finds its ultimate expression then in God sending his one-of-a-kind son, Jesus, to humanity, and I think that's what we see uh, there in verse 14. <clears throat> so looking through this, through the Gospel of John here, uh, in this passage, we see the Word is the pre-incarnate Christ, right? He was with God since before creation, and he is eternally existent, and he is, in fact, is God. And this Word that spoke, this is the Word that spoke the world into existence, He was intimately involved in the work of creation. And not only that, he is the very essence of life, right? He is the essence of life. In him is light. He is the light of the world, and he willingly chose to take on human flesh. And he came to people who mostly rejected him. But there are those who who did not reject him, who instead trusted in him and believed in him. And those who believe in him will find a new creation. 
So this is the reason why Christ came. He came so that we can have a new creation, a new life. So the question that we have is, do you believe that? Let's pray.